Welcome to Go West Young Podcast, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. I hope you are staying safe, but still getting outside this summer. On today's show, it's Latino Conservation Week. We've got a fascinating discussion with three Latino conservation leaders that touches on everything from the intersection of environmental justice and social justice to how we can make sure outdoor spaces are welcoming to everyone. And we are going to set that up with a look at how big the nature gap is in America today. Our friends at the Hispanic Access Foundation and the Center for American Progress have a new report that used satellite imagery and public data to quantify the degree that lands have been altered by human activity. That is to say, how natural they are. Then they overlaid that with census data, and they found that 74% of communities of color live in areas with less nature than the state median. Compare that to just 23% of white neighborhoods, which are below the state median for nature deprivation. Similarly, 70% of low-income communities are in areas with less access to nature. And the report authors point out that this is not an accident. It's the result of decades or centuries even, of racial discrimination and forced migration of people of color that often excluded them from green spaces by design. The report found that's even true in Native American communities, which are often rural, of course, but also more likely to live near national public lands with oil drilling, coal mining, and other industrial activity. So all of this is the backdrop for the Great American Outdoors Act, which we talked about in our last episode. The act includes billions of dollars, not just for restoring our existing parks, but also creating new urban green spaces from playgrounds to trails. That bill, which includes full permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, has passed the Senate by an overwhelming bipartisan majority, and it is scheduled for a vote in the House this week, maybe even by the time you are listening to this. Our guests this week are three environmental leaders from across the West coming together this week for Latino Conservation Week. Teresa Martinez is the executive director for the Continental Divide Trail Coalition. Welcome, Teresa. Hi. Noe Orgaz is the senior organizing manager with the Sierra Club. Hello. And Ian Tafoya is a community organizer with Green Latinos. Hi. Welcome to all of you. And we'll start with uh, Teresa first. First off, why create a Latino Conservation Week? Why is this an important thing to mark? Sure thing. So the goals of the Latino Conservation Week, it's actually a program of the Hispanic um, Access Foundation. Sorry, I had a momentary uh, pause there. Um, but it's a program of the Hispanic Access Foundation. And it's the goals are to provide Latino families and youth with outdoor recreation opportunities near their homes as well as just generally demonstrate the Latino community's commitment to conservation, which is often overlooked or, 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 or not seen at all oftentimes. And then ideally with them, like a lot of our organizations, basically partner with the Hispanic community leaders and organizations to support local and national conservation issues that are important to the Hispanic communities. And then ideally inform policymakers, the media, like uh, you all, um, the public of the Latino community's views, and, and just the public in general, the Latino community's views on important local and national conservation issues. And it was started in 2014, and it has grown exponentially ever since. And I know a lot of us have all partnered together, in particular last year, 
the Commonwealth of Vitro Coalition partnered with a lot of our partners here on the call um, to uh, really do some really cool, innovative things, bringing a lot of our communities together and really celebrating what conservation means to the Latino and Hispanic communities. And there are a lot of groups, not just uh, the ones who are on, on this call, as you mentioned, uh, Hispanic Access Foundation, Wilderness Society. It's a, it's a pretty long list. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a, in Colorado alone, there's like Protejete, there's obviously Hispanic Access Foundation, Canal de Vitro Coalition, the Wilderness Society, Sierra Club, Green Latinos. I mean, there's, it's across the board of both um, organizations that work directly with the Latino community, as well as, um, uh, oh yeah, another good one is Defiende Nuestra Tierra. Um, and uh, all of us work together, both with ally groups and organizations that work directly with the Latino communities. And I think it's a really powerful opportunity to bring so many communities together and really talk about the issues and find common ground um, and, and really um, raise the importance and just acknowledge that a lot of our communities of color are very engaged in conservation and have a lot of important things to say. Noe, what does it mean to highlight Latino conservation efforts in the current political and social climate? I mean, does this week, which has been around now for, for six years, does it take on an extra layer of meaning in the midst of this national reckoning on racial, social, and environmental justice? I feel like it elevates the, the platform a little bit higher than what um, it was in the past. But Latinos have always been um, stewards of the environment. We've always um, expressed an interest in protecting public lands and ensuring that we have quality air, safe drinking water. Um, but yeah, I think in, in the midst of talking about racial, social, and environmental justice, this is a prime opportunity for Latinos to talk about um, how We've been excluded, how uh, people have been uh, not feeling comfortable when they go to recreate in public spaces. And then also solutions, right? How can we be creative and how, how do we want to be um, reflected as we, we move forward? Um, one of the exciting things that we're doing right now is really just looking at renaming landmarks, renaming spaces and parks that, that reflect not only the Latino community, but all cultures that are not only here in Denver, but across the nation. Ian, let me ask you about that, both in terms of making sure that outdoor spaces feel welcoming to everyone when they have traditionally been white-dominated spaces, but also the, the renaming. Is that something that you, that you think is important to, to recognize and put at the top of the list? I guess my, my question is, is it not just symbolic? Is it more than, than, than just a name? It is more than symbolic to the people whom, like all of us, have carried this burden of our ancestors for far too long. A world that was unjust and propped up white supremacy as manifest destiny and resulted in genocide and oppression of not just Latinos, Blacks and Asians as well, low-income workers and whites. I think we're all connected on that issue. And I think right now what we're seeing bubble up is each of us coming to reckon with our own histories but recognize that these pillars are intertwined and the black brown alliance is very strong. Moreover, black is, there are black Latinos, you know, Latinos is, it's a culture, not a color I'd say. And I'd say we, we span that gambit and we span a wide diaspora. And so, you know, it's really important to talk about the names, but it's also important to talk about programming. It's also important to talk about protecting sacred sites like Chaco Canyon, which are, 
20,000 years old and belong to our culture. And so I think that protecting them, fighting for policy that grants access and affordability in education are all important in addition to messaging and educating people about the true history of the expansion into this part of the country. Let's dive into the the specific policy proposals. We do a lot of policy conversation on this podcast, but are there specific proposals in the conservation space that need more attention because they are very important to the Latino community, to the black community, but are overlooked or perhaps downplayed by traditionally white outdoor or or environmental groups? And I'll, I'll start with Teresa on that one. Oh, <laughs> so many. And I, I, I don't want to take too much airspace on that, but except for the fact that I think when we talk about access to public lands and we talk about the policies that either um, how people actually get permits or how they get um, uh, licenses for fishing or hunting, that a lot of times we created barriers and systems that people can't even access. And, um, and so I think I'll, I'll just stop there, but with this idea that in just basic simple things, there are policies and practices that we have created in our systems that, that create barriers that many people don't even see. Um, but if you're a community of color are, are the, the, the main reason why, one of the main reasons why you're maybe not getting out there. Ian? I, I just want to add that many people, when they think about getting outdoors and outdoor space, they're in Colorado in particular, you're thinking about getting to the mountains, you're thinking about getting to the grasslands, you're thinking of getting to a larger body of water that we've created. Where I think people are missing is the underrepresentation and underfunding of parks and open spaces into the marginalized redlined communities that we've been placed in. So if you're already in a position at COVID where you're stuck at home and you don't have a park that's in a safe and healthy place, you have to cross five or six crosswalks um, without safe crossing on major roads. These are the barriers that our children face. And, you know, there's a huge initiative to talk to folks about getting to a place within 10 minutes. You know, I grew up in a neighborhood where they built the first new park in 30 years, Cuatro Vientos Park, and it was wonderful. They say 3,000 children can walk to this park. They built a water feature, but not a water fountain. We need to be more comprehensive in what we're allowing. We know that Minnewachone water is life. And so that plays a critical part in the healing for all of us. I was just going to say to that point, I think things specifically out that we're talking about, like in the near future, things like land and water conservation funding, the Great American Outdoors Act are current, current pieces of legislation that actually provide capacity to purchase not only things that are big, like big landscapes, but those community parks, the basketball courts, access to things that are within those 10 minutes. And I think until that land and water conservation fund is actually fully funded, we don't have actually resources to actually do the work that we know we can do with within local communities and small communities, whether they're in rural or urban settings, just again, public parks that kids can go play safely in, um, as well as the big landscapes that are that we think of as these iconic places that everybody um, can access. So yeah, I think I think that's one thing that's happening right now that you know in a present day very fast track um, getting communities of color in particular engaged in 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 calling decision makers about supporting things like the Great American Outdoors Act. Um, I think is critical. Noah, let me ask you: Are how are all of the various issues that Sierra Club works on? intertwined. Sierra Club obviously does a lot of transportation work. We've seen here in in the Denver area, the public transportation system be cut back drastically during COVID. Uh, Are folks aware, are there other areas that people you think need to be aware of where areas that people may not think of as being conservation issues 
hurt access to the outdoors, particularly for marginalized communities? Absolutely. I think uh, transportation, you, you, you hit one that gets overlooked when we talk about conservation. Um, Ian mentioned every child should be within 10 minutes walking to a park. Uh, as we're driving to state parks and, and recreating, we should start looking at the vehicles that we're using to get out there, right? So electrification of our transportation system is something that's really big that's going on. Uh, the other space that we're looking at is uh, that I think Colorado needs to celebrate a little bit more. I know it's really challenging to celebrate under COVID, but uh, Fisher's Peak, which is a new state park that we just uh, we just created, um, these are going to be spaces that are going to be allowed for more uh residents of Colorado and more people to come and explore and, and be in the open spaces. Um, in terms of folks, uh, areas that people need to look into and, and, and spaces, I feel like the equity, outdoor equity is something that hasn't been really touched on. Um, a lot of folks feel excluded and that conversation is barely beginning. Um, a lot of folks feel that they've been um, targeted and there's been a lot of racism that has happened in public spaces. And we need to address these issues. It can't, um, one, it's illegal to have anybody feel um, terrorized in public spaces. But two, nobody should have to worry about when they walk into a public space that they are going to be harmed or feel in danger. Uh, so outdoor equity is something that we'll be uh, bringing up in the next couple months. For frontline communities, the use of public lands for natural resource extraction, like oil and gas, and the massive amounts of water consumption that it requires, in addition to the toxicity in the water that it creates, is probably the largest issue that I see, is particularly in rural Colorado, that people are missing the opportunity. You know, we're working on the Clean Water for All Coalition um, to ensure that people have access to clean water, and moreover, the, the climate issues are deeply concerning because these, these large fires can have huge impacts on the health and the well-being of the watersheds for the water that we access here in the urban areas. I think that's a great segue to talk a little bit about the work each of you do in the conservation world. Uh, obviously, Latino Conservation Week is a part of that, but each of you does a whole lot more than that uh, as well. Uh, let's go ahead and start with, with Teresa on that one, because we haven't had anyone from the Continental Divide Trail Coalition on the show before. You're the first. Great. Um, yeah, you know, the Continental Divide Trail Coalition, we're the lead partner with the, the Forest Service, BLM, and Park Service to manage and steward and protect the Continental Divide Trail, which, for those of you who don't know, is a trail that is 3,100 miles long, runs from Mexico to Canada along the spine of the Rocky Mountain West, and it, it actually is a congressionally designated resource that protects um, kind of a big deal, the North American watershed. So it's where the Atlantic and Pacific watersheds begin. So when we talk about the Continental Trail, we're not just talking about a physical thing that you can hike or bike or ride a horse on. We're talking about this landscape of 1.98 million acres that is the watershed of the North American continent. And when we talk about that, we're talking about water, climate change, clean air, uh, access to public uh, or, or lands that are federally managed and ensuring that people understand that they live here. And we're also talking about the history of those landscapes that have a longer history than when Congress designated them as a national city trail. We're talking about indigenous cultures and communities that their stories and their experiences needed to be need to be added to the history 
and the landscapes as we talk about them and understand them and respect them and honor them. Um, so a lot of our work is obviously in the traditional things people think of, uh, volunteers out doing trail work, but it's also in engaging with local communities, um, both physical communities like Salida, Colorado, but also communities of color that have a long attachment and connection to these landscapes that often aren't recognized in our current day world. And so how we can leverage this landscape as a way to broaden the understanding of how we relate to these landscapes and their long history and their, their hopefully long future uh, is critical for our work. Um, it really is about creating connections to culture, community, and landscapes themselves. And then we can also talk about how many of these things, whether it's climate change or the impact of fire or the impact of oil and gas uh, leasing or just general access to our, our these, these, these natural places is critical to our health. And I think one thing I'll mention is in these days of COVID is what I'm calling it. Um, one thing we've recognized more than ever before is how important having um, natural places where we can go and get respite and connect and recharge and be grounded in these days of such uncertainty. I think we recognize more than ever before the importance of having places like this that people can get to, whether it's, um, you know, in all the various ways they can get there because it's so important to the human spirit and the human mind and, and the heart and soul that we have. And so I think for communities of color in particular and the Latino communities, this week is a great way for us to talk about how we relate to these, these landscapes so differently than I think other communities might relate to them. And I think we have this deep spiritual, fundamental spiritual, almost blood connection to these places. And, and, and I think that is an important distinction in how we connect. So our work is around all of those things. Um, it's bigger than just this 18 to 24 inch tread. It's, it's this sort of larger context, which I'm, I'm personally very proud of. <laughs> Noe, you are relatively new to Sierra Club. What are you focused on? Yeah, relatively new. <laughs> Two weeks in. Um, <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, so as senior organizing manager, I focus on Nevada and Colorado's public lands and oil and gas leasing. So I work on two campaigns, uh, Our Wild America and our Beyond Coal campaign. So with Our Wild America, we want to ensure that as um, we're doing uh, oil extraction, that we're not infringing in our public spaces. And that if uh, the oil and gas industry ever wants to overstep, um, we're there to push back and, and be part of coalitions that that support the, the protections of public lands. Um, and then Beyond Coal is looking to dismantle and, and retire coal plants and replace them with um, solar or renewable energies. Um, so we're organizing community members all across uh, Nevada and Denver and Nevada and Colorado to, um, to engage um, primarily uh, folks who are interested in outdoor recreation. But uh, my twist is bringing in the Latino community involved in, into this process. Um, so yeah. Uh, a lot of that work is, is exciting and, and, and ongoing. And Ian, tell us about your work with Green Latinos. Green Latinos is a national organization that brings people together for a couple of reasons. One, to join in community and our appreciation for the outdoors and for conservation. The other is to help for job employment and professional development. And then lastly, probably the most important is to travel all across the state of Colorado to really empower. Many people in the community say we have to educate before we regulate. 
So we have to tell people what's happening to them. And then we have to help them find their story. And then we help them figure out how they can best use their story to influence the policy that's going to have the greatest impacts on their public health, including access to public lands. What are the the opportunities and also challenges, I, I guess, that the pandemic have created in terms of engaging uh, Latino communities on the environment if, if folks are also dealing with so much else in their life and a pandemic that is uh, disproportionately affecting black and brown people? Yeah, I, um, I try to look at this pandemic as just something that it's a microscope, right? Um, and it amplified all the suffering that has been happening already. So, I mean, when it comes to climate change, folks were suffering from heat islands, the heat island effect, um, water shortages, um, food access. Um, COVID just made it worse, right? So it, it, it definitely poses a challenge to engage community members in, in being involved civically in these processes. Uh, but it, it also creates an opportunity for, for policy and legislation to get created in a space where um, now we could look at the real problems, the long-term solutions. How are we going to um, outlive COVID and then also not go back to communities that are suffering from, from um, are suffering disproportionately from climate change. Uh, I would also add that Latino communities are also just resilient and will continuously continue to fight even under all the pressures that they're, they're being put under. So even though there is these barriers, they're still taking action. They're still participating um, to the best of their capabilities. Teresa, we started talking about how Latino Conservation Week is about getting the Latino community outdoors. We talked about how outdoor spaces have a history of being predominantly white spaces, often not welcoming to people of color. Obviously, events like this week are designed to change that. But I want to know, I mean, is that a burden that should fall primarily on people of color? Is is there a whole lot more that white hikers and climbers and boaters and environmentalists need to do to change that. Yeah, I think it's a it's a we, it's an and, it's a, something we have to do together, both with our allies and our accomplices in this space. Um, and I will share, you know, from our perspective on the Continental Divide Trail and these long trails and sort of this very traditional look at like outdoor recreation. I think sometimes people think the only way you can engage in some of these things is by hiking 3,100 miles. But we all know that most of us. I'm never going to through hike. I actually never want to through hike. It's not my gig, which is funny. And I love these trails because of the landscape. But I also think that most people spend a week in, you know, a, a day in the in in the woods with their family, camping, having a cookout, you know, playing in the Rio. You know, it, it's just so. I think two things is is as allies, people have to recognize that, you know, we've these communities have been in, in our, uh, in natural places forever. You know, we are, we we're hunters, we're fishermen, we're hikers, we're bikers, we're all these things. We just don't do it the way we see it in magazines. And I think the, the responsibilities in some of those outdoor retailer spaces and other kind of those kind of outdoor recreation entities to understand and recognize that, that, um, the way they show, they, they, they allow us to show up, so to speak, needs to change and recognize that we've been here forever. I mean, we're, you know, especially in the American Southwest, if you go to New Mexico, it looks very different than say Colorado Front Range Grazing Tories. It's a very different community um, that shows up at the trailhead. And I think 
that that's important. And I think realizing that um, it's not that we haven't been out playing in the woods, we just haven't been the ones showcased. And maybe it's because we don't show up with, you know, $300 jackets, we show up with a pair of Adidas and and a burrito in our backpack in a bag. I don't know. Uh, And I think that's the thing is we become, you know, the mention of the outdoor recreation community has sort of showcased or highlighted a specific image that maybe we don't fit. And I think as we get more savvy and we're able to sort of talk about how we show up, I think we'll see a lot more, um, a little bit different leveling out of how that all all can play out in these places. And I, and I do think that, you know, the opportunities, you know, something what Ian just said, you know, we're out there. Like one thing we know in our, in our national forests and national parks, we've seen a 200 and 300% increase of use of people out playing in the woods during this time. And I think if anything, it demonstrates the importance of public places, um, natural spaces that we can get away from. And it, it, to me, yes, we have to deal with the backlog of trail maintenance and all the trash and all that things. But I think it also says that people love our love nature and we need more of it. And again, it's not just out in these backcountry places as much as in the front country, but nature is so critical and fundamental to all of us, but regardless of the color of our skin. And I think when we work together, the solutions and the opportunities we can actually find to have successes, we're, we're going to find them. And I, I think these conversations that we're having and being able to utilize something like, like Latino Conservation Week to sort of remind us that we, you know, there's a lot more happening than maybe what we see in mainstream media. Um, and, and I think that's an important conversation and understanding to have. Noah. Absolutely. Just to touch a little bit on that is that we haven't highlighted how Latinos celebrate and recreate in the outdoors. I feel, yes, we do the traditional hiking, the 14ers, mountain climbing, um, mountain biking, but we also do family uh, gatherings, right? We, carnasadas, barbecues, and uh, we play live music and we enjoy um, family time, just spending time with the children running around, um, playing soccer, um, different things that, that I guess traditionally isn't considered recreation. Or traditionally, in, white, just, in, traditionally in white spaces. Right, yes, let's, let's be more frank, right? Um, and traditionally in white spaces, <laughs> um, it does not, it's not considered recreation. But we have been doing this uh, as traditions, right? We have family reunions in, in, in state parks every single year. Um, we have family gatherings and always, always go take a walk in the park. So I think that highlight of what the, I guess the Latino way of recreating um, needs to be highlighted a little bit more. I want to wrap up in the couple minutes we have left by asking each of you to share your conservation origin story. Uh, at what point did each of you realize that conservation work was going to be uh, an important part of your life? And we'll we'll start with Ian on that one. Well, I think I've been a conservationist since birth because my birthday is Earth Day, which is an amazing day to be born on. And my mother was always very clear to me about the significance of millions of people around the the world standing up and demanding better environmental justice laws and demanding clean water and clean air for all. She used to take me to the library and she would talk to me about how there were rivers on fire. Well, now we don't have rivers on fire, but we have dangerous chemicals in the water. You know, there's another component here that I think is really important. And in middle school, um, you know, my family didn't have a lot of chance to go camping because they were working so much. So the greatest opportunity I had was to go with a middle school trip that was funded through the Denver Parks and Recreation Department, where I went horseback riding for several days. 
And I think the most powerful part was they took us to a spring and they said, you could drink water from the ground. And that just to me was so foreign. And I tasted it and it tasted so good. And I bottled it and I brought it home and I forgot about it for a couple of weeks. And I looked in my closet when my mom told me to clean it out. And in that bottle was so much that was alive. And it really dawned on me the first time how much water does for all of us. Teresa, what, what draw you to the conservation world? Oh, you know, it's so crazy. I actually grew up in the East. I grew up in Virginia, but my family was from Austin and um, Texas and well, all over the Southwest. But um, I, my distinct memory is being with my family, as Noe described, um, down on a river. And we had this huge, I, can't, I don't know if it was my grandpa's birthday or what it was. And it was just all of the cousins and all of my mom's um, brothers and sisters and extended families and in-laws and everybody. And I just remember we as kids just playing all day long in the Rio until the cows came, you know, and then we all went at night, you know, all of this amazing food that my, you know, just everything you could possibly imagine. And then I remember um, for me professionally, so that I think really ingrained in me, just watching the sunset on my, my mom's lap, you know, on the river and, 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 you know, east in the hill country of Texas. And I just, I think that was just deeply ingrained in my soul. Um, but we grew up all over the world. My dad worked for the state department. So my, my actual life was so different than my family. So it really wasn't until I went to Virginia Tech in Virginia and I was a freshman. I went on a trail maintenance uh, event my first weekend at college and I, we went out to maintain a section of the Appalachian Trail and I literally stepped foot on it. And I remember asking the trail supervisor that day, so what is, what's this white blaze again? And he's like, well, if you turn left, you end up in Georgia, you turn right, you end up in Maine. And my mind was just blown <laughs> that something like that existed and that I could actually volunteer and participate in its maintenance. And I could own a piece of it per se, because I'm, I'm never going to own land. You know, I'm never going to be one of the 1%. And so for me, it was a way of, of really connecting deeply to this, this uh, legacy of stewardship um, that then led me to a love affair with these long trails. I worked for the Appalachian Trail Conservancy for 20 years, and then I moved west to work on the Continental Divide Trail. And um, for me, the CDT has really brought me home to my to my people, to my place, to my family in a way that I didn't even know when I left Virginia um, since my parents had passed away. And we just did this whole discovery of realizing, you know, our family came up from Mex from Mexico across the El Camino up across, you know, the, the, the whole span of New Mexico. And, and um, you know, you can trace our genetics all the way from Nuevo León, Mexico to, to, you know, Austin, to Oklahoma, to all the places. And I just feel like for me, this is coming home. And, and so now my commitment isn't just to the divide, to the trail, it's to this landscape and to these communities that, that are just in my blood. You know, when I, when I'm home, down in the boot heel of New Mexico, if I'm on the in the field, my my hair stands up on my arms. It's like my my blood just settles because it knows it's home. And so for me, this has been a it's a commitment of love. It's a love affair, not just with the, the trails and the landscapes, but with the people and the places I come from. Noe, you get the last word. And so I come from Los Angeles, um, and I grew up right next to the LA River. I mean, if you want to call it a river, <laughs> uh, empty. Uh, concrete path that flows water to the ocean. Um, but every every uh, summer, we would go, like the community, local organization would take us to camping. And I was walking distance from local parks. And I always took it for granted. I mean, I, I just, it was just there, you know, and oftentimes dirty. Um, but when I really started to feel a connection 
to the environment and started to understand that I loved conservation was around the same time that I started to find my own identity. So uh, growing up, just real quick, um, I didn't have a history. Uh, I didn't understand my own history and it, I grew up very angry. Um, so one day while I was on this spiritual journey, I, I'm, I'm out, I'm by a river and I just put my feet in the water. And for a brief moment, I had this memory, distant memory of a long time ago. And I asked an elder, like, hey, um, what is this? Like, what am I, what am I thinking? What am I, what, what am I feeling? And he told me, you know, you are a microcosm of generations. People have came before you. you we have ancestors. We have a connection to the environment, to nature. Um, you are interconnected. There is memory here. And I, uh, I fell in love. I'm like, I want to know more. I need to, I need to dig deeper into this. So the fact that we are connected to the earth is a hard thing for people to understand. But when you put your feet into water or you dig your feet into the sand or you place your hand on a rock or you hug a tree or you just <laughs> stop and take a deep breath and breathe in fresh air, those are all spaces where you could just remember that we are connected to this environment. I can think of nowhere better to leave this conversation. Noe Orgaz with the Sierra Club, Ian Tafoya with Green Latinos, Teresa Martinez with the Continental Divide Trail Coalition. Thank you all so much for this conversation today. Thank you. You all have a great one. And that will do it for another episode of Go West Young Podcast. If you love live streams, and let's be honest, you do because you are stuck at home like the rest of us, join us this Thursday for a conversation about the 30 by 30 initiative to protect 30% of American land and water by the end of this decade. It's the third stop in our Road to 30 virtual tour, and we are focused on Nevada this time, especially how Bureau of Land Management lands will have to play a key role in hitting that 30 by 30 goal. The Conservation Lands Foundation will be with us, along with Senator Tom Udall and Nevada State Assemblyman Howard Watts. It's happening this Thursday, 11 a.m. Nevada time, noon mountain, 2 p.m. Eastern. There's a link to the live stream in the show notes. You can always go and replay it afterwards, even if you're listening to this after this Thursday. Thanks again to Teresa, Noe, and Ian for such a great conversation about Latino Conservation Week. You can learn more about that in the show notes as well. We will be back in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. Thank you.